right, well, my name is Brock Orlowski, and I'm actually going to move this up here. <laughs> and my wife and I have been attending uh, Grace North since its inception, and I'm always kind of encouraged whenever I hear stories like Fabio and Mika's of how far Grace North has come, uh, all the way from DuPont Downs, if you remember, uh, for those of you there at the beginning, meeting in basically one big room, and then behind the curtain would have been the children's ministry, and they were yelling and shouting throughout the whole service, so you couldn't hear what was going on in the service. Uh, and it's just kind of amazing how far we've come. So I'm super happy to be here with you guys this morning. It's always kind of nice to be with family um, at the North site. So I'm going to pray before we get started, and then we'll dive in. So let's pray. Uh, God, just grateful um, for your reminders of your faithfulness, uh, the reminder that you want more for us than we even might want for ourselves. Thank you for the example of Fabio and Mika. I pray again for them, just for uh, a smooth transition down to Cap. Uh, we pray that you would take any barriers that are in their pathway. I pray to God that we would follow their example and step out of faith, step out in faith and out of our comfort zone more often than we do. Pray that we would rely on you more. Pray for uh, myself today, just that you'd let these words be yours and uh, allow us to communicate clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so behind me, you can see parables. That is the series we're starting today. And it's kind of cool, actually, because my brother-in-law, Levi, will be with you guys next week. Um, And he's right now in New Haven uh, sharing a message, introducing the parables as well. So you'll get to hear from him. Um, He's probably going to be much more eloquent than I will. Um, He's a little shorter, though, so I got that on him. But uh, don't tell him I said that. Anyway, so we're going to start looking at the parables here today, and I want to start off by telling you guys a parable, all right? And you can decide whether or not it's, it's fictional or non-fictional. We'll just, we'll see. So there once was a story of a five, six, seven-year-old boy, just a young boy. Let's just call him Brock, just for sake of the story, okay? And Brock had transitioned to a, a new bike that was without training wheels, Okay? And so as Brock got a little more comfortable, he's starting to try a little more things, get a little more creative on his bike. He's getting pretty confident. But then Brock's neighbor gets a new bike. It's a bigger bike with the hand brakes, not just the old coaster brakes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The coaster brakes. So Brock got pretty comfortable with the coaster brakes, but he saw this new shiny, awesome bike with the hand brakes, and he wanted to try it. So he begged and pleaded with his parents, said, I really want this kind of bike. And Brock's dad said to him, well, Brock, that might not be a good idea. You might want to get a little more confident with your bike before we switch over to the handle brakes. And, you know, Brock could have listened, but he's just a young kid. And so, remember, this isn't a true story, of course. But anyways, so Brock, of course, didn't listen. And so next time he was out with his friends, he saw the bike and he said, hey, can I borrow that? Let's, let's try this thing out. And so one of the cool things to do on your bike back in the 90s was to go as fast as you could and then hammer the brakes and try to skid and carve on the bike. You know what I'm talking about? Are there, did nobody try these things, or am I the only kind of crazy little boy? By the way, it's not a true story. So anyways, borrowed my friend's bike, not my friend, Brock, of course, and decided to pedal as fast as I could and hammer on the brakes and try to carve out. But what's the tricky part with handle brakes? Well, one controls the front, one controls the back. So if you hammer on that front brake, the back's not going to stop you you're going to sail over the handlebars. And that's exactly what happened to Brock. And the first thing to meet the pavement was Brock's face. Skidded along, scraped off about half his face. I'm sure lost some baby teeth, a lot of pride along the way. Um, So Brock picked himself up, started sprinting home, covered in blood, sees his dad working in the yard, runs up to his dad, crying, full of blood, probably a little embarrassed. His dad just looks at him and says, you all right? 
well, of course he's not all right. He's covered in blood. But anyways, Brock runs inside. His mom cleans him up. She was maybe a little bit more compassionate in that moment because, of course, Brock's dad was thinking, we had this conversation. I told you you shouldn't try that bike. You need to get a little more confident. So let's use that as kind of our context to move forward. By the way, Brock's face recovered pretty well. I was able to manage to marry this beautiful woman over here. Whether I tricked her or not, it's not clear, but my face might not have been the problem. Anyway, so now this story is an example of a parable, but as we dig in a little bit deeper, we kind of got to ask some questions. So we're going to use that story to answer some questions, but we'll start with kind of a simple one. So the first question, you'll see him behind me, is what is a parable? Well, simply put, a parable is a short story that is simple in plot, but powerful in meaning. So we take the maybe true, maybe not story of Brock and his bike, we see that it's simple in plot. It was a kid on his bike with his friends, not listening to his parents. But there might be a little more powerful meaning behind it that maybe kids, yes, should listen to their parents, but maybe they should also be more self-aware of if they're ready or not to try something that might be a little bit too difficult for them. So maybe there's a piece of self-awareness. So a parable is a way of communicating a crucial big picture point with a deep meaning in a very simple and applicable way. So when we look more deeply at parables, it's often communicating morality. It's communicating in sort of a father-to-son fashion where you're really trying to instill something meaningful in a way that's going to be easily understood. There's a reason that when kids are growing up, and I have a two-year-old daughter, that we read her books, but she learns things from them. She learns her shapes. She learns colors. She learns numbers. And it's, it's a simple way of doing so, but it's a bigger picture of learning and being able to fail and being able to, to try new things. So there's a bigger picture behind it. Now, the second question that we can ask ourselves is, well, if we kind of have an idea of what parables are, we know in Scripture Jesus often speaks in parables. So why did he do this? And a little known fact is that Jesus actually spent about a third of his teaching communicating in parables. Now, you can go check or you can believe me either way. But Jesus spent a lot of time in the Gospels communicating in parables, and we have to ask why. So when he's with his 12, his disciples, he's communicating these big ideas, but he's communicating them to teenagers. The disciples were ranging in age from probably 13, 14, 15, up to Peter being the oldest. And so these are young kids, and they were mostly uneducated. They were kind of just blue-collar kids, and he needed to communicate big-picture things because they were going to start the church. So he needed them to understand something that was big, powerful, meaningful, with a small example of a story. So he would use this format and these concepts to break down these big, heavenly concepts into the small reality in which the disciples lived. And that's something that we can take with us today. So the third and final question before we dive into our passage this morning is, how do parables apply to me now? Now, obviously, the parable I told at the beginning, looking at my own life, It's a parable about something I should have learned, but eventually the pavement taught me more than my dad tried. He tried to help me avoid that pain, and it was a big-picture idea of self-awareness and and humility, probably, that I had to learn the hard way and had to go through some pain to learn. So if we look at parables today, we might be trying to find out something that God wants us to see in this big-picture idea, and it's a, a way of seeing kind of a mirror that we reflect on how we might be doing and the principles that God has given God communicates to us in Scripture, and it's a way for us to see, how am I really stacking up? How am I doing in regards to what God is trying to get me to see or identify? And 
Finally, parables give us a window for how we can look at the world in light of how God sees the world. So this, this next slide is something you're going to see throughout the, the course of this entire series. So uh, Matt, if you want to just put all those things up there, that would be great. So this slide is going to be kind of our framework. And we're going to refer back to it over the next few weeks when you hear a bunch of different speakers, some shorter than me. So to recap, parables are short stories that represent kingdom truths. It's big God-sized ideas in human-sized stories. Ways for us to grasp things and take them with us and refer back. There's a reason most of history was told in kind of oral fashion, where it's stories being passed down from generation to generation. It's big ideas in small form. Secondly, it's common language of the day, and it's memorable. I remember that story in large part because it hurt, but also because of the things that I learned through it. Third, it's simple in language, deep in meaning, as I've already mentioned. And sometimes these confusing, life-changing ideas can be simplified into kind of a more digestible form. All right, and then lastly, it follows this progression of what we will talk about as a picture, a mirror, and a window. Okay, and we'll touch on that as we go. Okay, so with this in mind, do we have a pretty good idea what parables are? At least a a small idea? Might might actually help to look at a real parable, one that God came up with, which is probably a little bit better than my life anecdote. And so what I want to do this morning is take a look in in, uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. But I want to do something a little different. I want to stand for the reading of Scripture, as was pretty culturally common back in biblical days. So if you could stand if you're able... And we're going to read together Luke 18, 9 through 14. And it says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, these robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but instead beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray before we have a seat. God, we're, we're thankful for your, um, for, your, for your word. We're thankful for the truth that you communicate to us. We're thankful that you do so in a way we understand. I think we often, God, take that for granted, that you try to bring things to our level of understanding, even though we could never understand fully what you want us to. We thank you to, that you communicate in words that we would understand. And God, I pray that through this passage and many others today, that we'd be able to more fully understand who you are, and who we are specifically in your, sign, in your sight. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. So, one of the things that's kind of nice about parables is they're pretty straightforward. If you were to read this parable, you're going to be able to understand it very easily, whether you're a teenager, an adult, or you know, a kid in, in grade school. You're going to probably have an idea of what's going on. I mean, actually, it says at the beginning of this parable exactly what the point is. So just to reiterate that, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's pretty, pretty much as easy as it gets, right? It's, it's pretty simple to understand. If you think you got it going on and you don't care about others, 
Or if you care about others, but only to make yourself look good, then this parable's for you. Are you on board? So there's actually a lot, though, going on in this parable that is kind of below the surface. Because again, it's big picture ideas in small, digestible form. And I think this parable might have a lot of relevance to us today. I know it does for myself. And I think there's three main concepts and ideas that we can see that we're going to unpack together today. The first is that as people, we need to be more self-aware. Number two, we need to stop comparing what we do to others. And number three, that God loves us no matter what we've done, where we've been, or who we've been. So the main point, obviously, here is don't view yourself as better than anyone else. Don't look down on anyone because of their status or, or their sins or, or their past or whatever it might be. But as we read this, we get a glimpse of how God wants to, us to posture ourselves toward him in our worship, in our prayer lives, and toward him just in our general day-to-day. And so one of the biggest issues in our culture today is that people really aren't self-aware. Okay, When I was young, growing up, I wanted to be a professional athlete in many capacities. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. So I started playing baseball, and guess what? I couldn't hit a baseball. So that dream died pretty fast, right? When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a professional football player. I never really got big enough to be a football player. Okay, I also can't throw a spiral. You know, there's, there's things that are against us that sometimes we just ignore because we don't want to come to grips with reality. We don't want to have the hard conversations and see the truths of what is against us. And it's not to be negative and to look at your life and be kind of like Eeyore and say, oh, everything's terrible, my life stinks, nothing's ever going to go well. But it's having a, rea- a realistic mindset of, here are some things that I might not be very great at, and that's okay, because I can improve those things, work on those things, but it's a way of helping us see the world for what it is and helping us be more realistic. And so with that being said, in our culture kind of perpetuating this idea of not being self-aware, some people just refuse to acknowledge their own weaknesses and issues. And we've cultivated this society that's built on success, power, and status. And while those things are good, it's okay to have money, it's okay to have power, it's okay to be famous, those things aren't bad. But what they might do is they might skew our view of others and kind of puff ourselves up by our own estimation. And that's what leads to us looking down on people. I think it can start with a lack of self-awareness of who we actually are. So Jesus uses the Pharisees as an example of what not to do. He also uses the tax collector as somebody to emulate. But this is kind of a culturally blasphemous statement by Jesus because Pharisees were the ones who did everything right. They did everything the way it was supposed to be done. And the tax collectors were the ones who would charge additional taxes and just skim off the top and keep money for themselves. They were kind of the scum of the earth. They were the people that no one wanted to be around because they were liars, they were cheaters, and they were thieves. And so Jesus kind of flips the script. He actually kind of shuts down this paradigm and changes things and shows us that there's a humble man and a haughty man, and it's kind of flip-flopped. It's not who we might think it would be. And so maybe you don't relate to the tax collector. Maybe you're not humble by nature. I'm, an, I'm, I'm not. If you know me, that's true. I don't have really a pride. Uh, I, I have a kind of a pride problem. I don't really have a humility problem. Um, and so if you relate more to the Pharisee, I often see for myself the blessings in others' lives, and I think, you know, I'm faithful. I do this and that. I go to church. I serve in this way. I give my 10% to the church. And, and like the, the Pharisee in the story, he tries to almost justify, well, I do all this good stuff. Look how great I am. But he does it more so to say, look how terrible that tax collector is. And again, it puffs ourselves up by our own estimation. 
But isn't it interesting that at the end of the parable, that Jesus says it was the tax collector who went home justified by God. It wasn't the Pharisee, the one who just, quote, did everything right, did everything the right way. Because the fallacy in our Christian circles is that if we sing the right songs, if we check all the, the Christian boxes, we read our Bibles, you know, X amount per day, that we're, we're good. Everything's great. Well, there's kind of a newsflash for you. It's not all just about your deeds. There's plenty of references in Scripture that say, guess what? It's not about your deeds. God wants our heart and soul. He doesn't just want your actions. He wants every piece of who we are. He wants everything. And so the difference here is that the Pharisee did, just, did these things just because he was supposed to, it was expected of him. He didn't do it out of his love for the Lord. He just did it to check the boxes. And I wonder if sometimes you're like me and you fall into that trap and we forget that self-awareness is pretty important. Where if I look in the mirror, a lot of times, do I go to church? Do I give my tithe just because it's what I'm supposed to do? Or am I doing it out of the love I have for the Lord? That's not a fun conversation that I have to have and, and some things that I have to own in my own conscience of what's really my intent here. So the nice thing, though, is that Jesus models self-awareness by not only identifying himself as God, you know, therefore he is God, by the way, he acknowledges that he is following the will of the Father, which also wasn't easy for him at times. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. He's self-aware that this is difficult. He, there's realities that he struggled with, but he was self-aware enough to know that he had to go through those things anyway. And so self-awareness is something that will allow us to grow into the people God has intended for us to be since he created us. So it's often easy to see yourself as someone or better than someone else. It's easy for us to, to look at 10 other people in our lives and, and we all do it and we say, well, at least I'm not that person. At least that's not my screaming kid over there. We've been experiencing that a lot lately with a two-year-old of we're that family. Our two-year-old is screaming and we stink as parents and we need to go to parenting classes or whatever. But <laughs> at least we're not as bad as the other family down there. So the reality though is that in the danger of this is that when we start to judge ourselves and measure ourselves against each other, it's not just a matter of distinction, where I am distinct from the other person. What it's actually doing is we begin to look so much outwardly that we lose sight of our, our internal relationship with the Father. And that again affects that self-awareness piece. We forget that we're supposed to be communing with God. We're not supposed to be communing with what someone else is doing to make ourselves look good and therefore we're closer to God. That's not how it works. He actually wants us to get closer with him individually. So are we too focused on being better than others that we forget our goal is to live like Jesus? Because that will humble you pretty quick. If you start to think you're awesome, just go ahead and measure yourself against the king and see how awesome you are. Have you sinned once? All right, you are already worse than Jesus. Congratulations, right? And so it's just a way of helping us to be self-aware and, and compare ourselves to Jesus, but in a way that helps us realize that we need to commune more often with him. So one thing that I think is helpful in, in this whole conversation is to see that comparison, as we look at other people, comparison is the thief of joy. It really is. I'll, I'll say it again because I think it's worth it, that comparison is the thief of joy. No one has really gained anything by comparing themselves to another human. Oh, I'm not as good-looking as that person. Oh, I, I can't run as fast as that person. I'm not as smart as that person. Really, how, how good is that for you to compare to someone else? Why not look internally and say, I can do better in this area. Yeah, I'm deficient here, 
but if I keep working hard, I'll get better. That's the mindset I want. I want that growth mindset instead of saying, I'm fixed on this person and what they're doing. That's the damaging part that really can drive us to a place of despair. And when we start trying to weigh our deeds and our thoughts against the world, we're allowing Satan to get that foothold in our lives. We're allowing him to penetrate even a little bit every day when we compare it to that other person down the street. Because when we start keeping up with the Joneses instead of the Jesus, that's where we struggle. That's a good word right there. You can write that down if you want. Like I said, I don't really have a humility problem. I'm sorry. But the world's concept of success is not necessarily in line with what God has for you. Because when we start comparing with the people down the street, the people next to us, we forget what God has in store. Because by the way, God has immeasurably more in mind for you than you ever could imagine. God has so much more in mind for you than you could ever imagine. So that idea you have, that goal you have, that dream you have, God has a bigger one. But when we only compare it to what someone else has, we don't see it and we lose sight. And so if we compare ourselves to others, we are at the same time judging others and allowing ourselves to lose sight of that person's value in the kingdom. Because there's twofold, it's a twofold piece. When we compare ourselves, we're ignoring who we are, but when we compare to others as well, we're forgetting their value for the kingdom. We're diminishing their value when we try to make ourselves just look better. We're focusing on flaws when God doesn't see flaws. He sees his child whom he loves, and we need to love each other and do the same. And so if I were to compare myself to LeBron James, say, oh, he's rich and famous, he's good at sports, I don't have anything, then I'm ignoring you know, God's intent and reality for my life when I start saying, well, at least I'm a better person than him because, you know, he did X, Y, and Z and he's all done all these terrible things and he, you know, is a dirty, rotten sinner and I'm not as bad as him. Well, that's also diminishing what God might be trying to do through someone else. And so the, the comparison game, again, gives us a difficult reality and skews our reality. So God doesn't need us to compare ourselves to anyone but Jesus. Because here's another reality, and this might sound a little bit harsh, but have you ever really realized that God doesn't need you? Are we self-aware enough to realize that? That God doesn't need a single one of us? Because his plans are going to get accomplished regardless of what happens. Because guess what? He's God. And his plans are bigger than you. And the cool thing, though, is that they involve us. That he wants us. Because even if God doesn't need you, he still wants you. It's just the reality in, in, in coming to the grips with, am I okay with that? Do I want to lean into that? Because the fact that he doesn't need our help, but he wants it, that should comfort us. And we should want to lean into that. But sometimes we just think about only us. And we forget passages like Isaiah 26.8, which says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. It's not about us. It's about his name and renown. Am I okay at the end of my life if no one remembers what I did, but they see God through my life? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with God getting the glory when we did a lot of work here that goes unnoticed? Is it okay that God doesn't need us but wants us? Is that reality something we want to lean into? Because it's not about... The, it's not about the gift, it's about the giver. It's about who's giving the things that we're doing. It's about who's directing our steps. 
not about us actually taking them. And as soon as we make it about us, we've lost sight of what's important. So if we look at the other person in this story, I know we spent a lot of time just looking at the Pharisee and the the comparison game and and the lack of self-awareness. We can look at a good example in the tax collector. And it's clear that Jesus wants us to be more like him. And Jesus, in telling the story, isn't condoning the sins of tax collectors and kind of the, the image that we get of them and that they're terrible humans. They just don't care about anyone else. They just want money. They just want status, whatever it might be. He's actually flipping that and he's saying, you know what? There's a kingdom principle in this parable that I want you to understand through the example. That's what Jesus is telling us. And that example is, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you've strayed. You're still my child and I still love you. And maybe that's just the message for one of you in the room today, that you feel really guilty about something that you've done. And it's difficult for you to see how God could possibly still love you. But he does. He still loved the tax collectors. He still loved the thief on the cross. He still loves you. And maybe that's just something somebody internally and in their own, in their own conscience needs to hear and needs to be encouraged by. The other encouragement here is that in the book of Matthew, it says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's the cool part. He didn't just promise that to the people who have it all together. Oh, you've been going to church. You've been tithing. You've been praying. You've been going to your Bible study. You've been reading your Bible. You've been worshiping and and singing loudly at church. Yeah, you get rest. He's saying it to the people who are struggling with addiction. The people who are struggling with temptations, who are struggling with greed, who are struggling with pride, like myself. He's saying, guess what? I'll give you rest. Come to me for rest, and I will teach you what rest looks like. Because he's talking to everybody, the good, the bad, and the ugly. When he says things like this in Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't when you got your act together when you finally figured it all out, that's when Christ died for you. Nope, he says, when you're at your worst and when you're at your best, that's when Christ died for you. He's saying that to each and every one of us at every point. And the tax collector came to that realization. He, it says he went home justified before God that day. But he had to acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I need your grace to cover my sin. That's not an easy realization. The tax collector knew what he had done. He knew that he was not worthy of salvation. But guess what? He knew God was going to give it freely anyway because he was still loved. And so even though the tax collector didn't have it all together, he knew that his sin was between him and the Father, but he acknowledged it and turned to God. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. We accept Jesus. Not easy, but at the same time, it's so simple. It's hard to acknowledge your sin. It's hard to be self-aware. But it's so much simpler than we make it because Jesus is already there and he's waiting for us. We don't bring anything to the table in this conversation. We have nothing that God doesn't already have, but he still wants. He still wants us. He wants our involvement. He wants our heart and he wants our soul. And the fact of the matter is that the gospel is inclusive because the father loves all of his children equally. And that's the hardest part about this parable is the Pharisee, who I connect with probably more so, I see so many people who are getting the desires of their hearts who are, quote, worse than me. And I get jealous, I get angry, I get bitter. But I come back to passages like this, and I use passages of Scripture to almost comfort myself. 
So Romans 3.23, one of the most commonly used passages to acknowledge sin, says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes we'd like it to say, and I kind of rewrote it as I think of it sometimes, and it says, for all have sinned, some more than others, and fallen short, some further than others, than the glory of God. But at least I haven't sinned more and fallen further. Sometimes I almost, my mind uses scripture in that way to, to make myself feel better. But here's the cool part. In the most, probably in the most neglected passage in scripture, in my opinion, we use Romans 3.23 to say, guess what? You're all sinners. And we forget to add verse 24 to the entire passage. And it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And guess what? And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. So guess what? You're all sinners, myself included, but guess what? You're all free from that if we accept the sacrifice that Jesus made. So if we humble ourselves, are we self-aware enough to realize that we need help and we need the grace of the Father? Are we going to come to grips with our own realities, our own deficiencies, and our own strengths? Or are we going to continue to play this comparison game? Do we spend too much time focusing on, on the things of life, the tasks, the boxes to check, the Christian boxes to check? You know, it reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's frantically running around trying to get the house ready for Jesus and, and prepare all the food and do everything right for Jesus, and Mary's just sitting at his feet, just listening, just spending time. And Jesus says, Martha, just slow down. Look at Mary. Do what Mary's doing. It doesn't mean that we don't have obligations and, and responsibilities, but it does mean that God wants us to commune with him. But sometimes it means we have to look internally and say, man, I'm really messing this up. I'm getting this so wrong because I'm just worried about checking those boxes. So with this in mind, are we concerned with the tasks expected of us or are we concerned with communing with the king? Because in this parable, we get a sense that God is rewarding the tax collector, not just because he's self-aware, but the bigger picture is that he comes to grip with his own sin, and it's also because he's a child of God that he's justified. It's just that simple. Sometimes it's difficult to imagine that God loves us as much as any other person, and even as much as the person that we know is just awful down the road. But it's true, and that God loves each and every one of his children deeply and equally. That's a hard reality. But we should take comfort in knowing that we have all fallen short of this glory, just as Romans 3 says. So let's just kind of recap this and look at these three simple concepts again. First is to be self-aware, even when it hurts. Because self-awareness can lead us to a deeper communion with God. It can lead us to a deeper intimacy with God because it's allowing us to get out of our own way, remove ourselves from the equation, and allow God to step in. And if we do that, we can experience deeper level of communi communication, communion, prayer with the Father. Second thing is, try to see others the way Jesus does, even when it's hard. Don't play the comparison game to make yourself seem better or to make someone seem worse. Don't play the comparison game to make yourself seem inadequate because God doesn't see you that way. There's multiple pieces and layers of comparison and all are bad because comparison is the thief of joy. The last thing is that God loves you no matter what. Good, with the good, with the bad, and with the ugly. doesn't matter what you've done. 
And so with this reality, if you're like the tax collector or the Pharisee, if you connect with one or the other, Jesus has one simple message for us in this parable that goes deeper than anything else. There's nothing you can do to earn or to lose the love of the Father. And his desire is for us to be in relationship with him. It's just that simple. You can't earn it. You can't check those boxes and earn it. And you can't lose it by what you've already done or what you're going to do. 1 John 4 says that we love because he first loved us. Is that true for us today? Do we love others well? Are we self-aware in our realization that we don't have to have it all together? Do we love ourselves well in that way? Or will we continue to take the cue of the tax collector, pour ourselves out, or in comparison, just continue to play the comparison game like the Pharisee? One thing just to leave with today is that we don't want to keep Jesus waiting. He wants a relationship with you right now. And maybe there's just one person in here that has been waffling back and forth for for weeks, months, years, and just can't quite get over that hurdle of seeing themselves as loved by God. Or maybe it's you can't seem to understand how God can love you despite your past or to love that other person that has not as bad or has a worse past than you. And you can't quite connect those dots. But please know that it's, it's not too late and it will never be too late. Jesus has been waiting for you your entire life. Whether it's waiting for deeper intimacy with you, whether it's waiting for you to turn to him for the first time, or whether it's to take just another step closer to eventually giving your life over to him. He wants a relationship with you in this exact moment, so don't keep him waiting any longer. Let's pray. God, I'm just grateful for uh, what you remind us from, remind us uh, about in your word. Grateful that you remind us that uh, people like tax collectors can, can still be loved by you, can still earn uh, salvation by what you've done. And by earn salvation, I mean that they can, they can truly just take that step and say, I'm forgiven because of what Jesus has already done. I'm grateful that that applies to all of us, that it's not something that's exclusive that we have to do something to check boxes to achieve. I'm grateful that even though the Pharisee had their own issues in the parable, that you still love Pharisees just as much as you love tax collectors. So God, I pray that we could be a more self-aware people, that we can come to grips with who we are in your eyes more readily. I pray that we would love others well, that we would not look to compare ourselves in any capacity. And God, I pray that we would just turn to you um, to commune with you on an even deeper level. So God, thanks for who you are, uh, and thanks for your consistency in our lives. Amen.